When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following is a Podcast One Minnesota production. For those who simply can't get enough talk about the Vikings, we present Bonus Chatter. Bonus Chatter about your favorite team that's unscripted, unfiltered, and uninterrupted. This is another edition of 1500 ESPN's Purple Podcast. Hello and welcome into another episode of the Purple Podcast. Matthew Collar here, and along with me today is one of my favorite Minnesota Vikings writers, Arif Hassan, writes for ZoneCoverage.com. Arif, how are you? I'm good, and good to hear that you don't know many Minnesota Vikings writers. Oh, self-deprecating humor. That's so you, Arif. Uh, I've got a lot of questions for you about the state of the Minnesota Vikings, who are in great shape at 9-2 and two as we head into the final stretch of the season here. And I want to start big picture, and then don't worry, we'll get to your opinion on Case Keenum and Teddy Bridgewater and where they stand. But big picture right now, 9-2, and two, where do the Minnesota Vikings stand in the NFC as Atlanta has gotten stronger, Carolina has gotten some better performances out of Cam Newton, maybe not so much last week, but uh, it seems like their offense might be starting to get it together. So some of the teams are kind of separating themselves in the NFC. And I look at it, Arif, like it's a very tight race for every team, whether you're 9-2 and two or 7-4, and four, but the teams at the top are all very, very good. Yeah, I think so. Um, you mentioned that like some teams are separating themselves out, and I think that's definitely true where you've got teams at the top and, and, and teams that were kind of near the top were kind of figuring out, you know, who might be ready for a late-season a late season push, like Atlanta, who's not really ready uh, for the playoffs. But I think between all of these good teams, especially with the recent performances of Atlanta and Carolina, it's actually pretty difficult to separate out, you know, which teams at the top uh, of the NFC are really sort of, you know, the best teams. I mean, like the Vikings, for example, have the second-best record. Uh, in the NFC, but they've got kind of one of the lowest point differentials of any, um, I guess you'd call them a playoff team, uh, if the if the season ended today. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of, like, unique and interesting, and it's difficult to figure out what that means. Uh, you know, the L.A. Rams have, like, a higher point differential in, in DVOA, uh, and, and so do the Saints, but, I mean, the Vikings beat both of those teams, you know, head-to-head, and so are they a better team? Do those other performances that the Vikings didn't look so hot in, you know, they, do they play a role? It's kind of interesting and, and kind of difficult to figure out sort of if there's a dominant team, aside, of course, from uh, the Eagles who have MVP candidate Fletcher Cox on their team. Do you think, oh, oh wow, that's kind of a, a hot take there, but I think the, <laughs> Eagle, the 
But the Eagles do have one of the best defensive lines in the NFL. I mean, I think it's kind of a three-team race for the defensive lines. It's the Vikings, the Jaguars, and then uh, the Philadelphia Eagles. When, when we're sizing up the Atlanta Falcons, I kind of feel like, Arif, that we shouldn't go back any farther than a couple of weeks when it seems they made some tweaks to get their offense looking more Kyle Shanahan-y. Uh, you know, Shanahan obviously left for the San Francisco 49ers, and they made some changes on offense that really weren't working. But over these last couple of weeks, the offense has been really good for Atlanta. They've put up 92 points. It seems like they're finding Julio Jones again down the field. Uh, they're using some of the play-action concepts that they did under Kyle Shanahan. And I think that the Vikings are running into this team at a really good good time for us to find out how good they the Vikings really are especially going on the road yeah I think so and I think that you're right that uh, you can really only look at the past three weeks where I think where they scored 27 points against Dallas and 30 plus points in the last two games the only real question is you know Atlanta uh, has been scoring all of these uh, all of these points and what you're, you're right it's a new look offense but the defenses they're up against you know don't seem you know, that's strong. Of course, it's the Seahawks defense, but we know how injured they are and how kind of the, the, the core of that secondary group has been gutted. You know, how good is that t- defense and is that an appropriate test? Um, it's kind of interesting to try and figure out, you know, how much of this Atlanta offensive explosion has to do with Sarkeesian kind of changing things to kind of match with what worked last year and how much of this offensive explosion happens to be sort of a, a spot in the schedule where the defenses just aren't as strong. Uh, and this is a good time for us to figure out, you know, how good Atlanta is when they go up against the Vikings defense. And I think that you're right. This is a good time for the Vikings defense to kind of prove um, that they have the ability to to carry the team on their own as well. Because uh, you know, these last couple of games there have been like some pretty significant mistakes, not obviously enough to, to lose a game. Um, that make you wonder, like, you know, at top five team uh, or top five defense, like this one should probably perform better in a lot of the in a lot of the spots that they've performed than they have been. With the with the Vikings defense, I don't think you can ever entirely give them a pass for what happened against Detroit for giving Detroit opportunities to get back in that game. At the same time, when you play one of those Thursday games, I always kind of just shrug my shoulders at trying to analyze them because you're playing on the short week. You, your players haven't really recovered fully. You can't scheme the same way that you would scheme or prepare the same way you would prepare. And I guess it's not an excuse necessarily, but more of I don't put a lot of value in what happens. If they had lost that game on Thanksgiving 30 to nothing, I might have just shrugged my shoulders and moved on. I mean, the win helps them at 9-2, and but I kind of don't look at that as having the same sort of value in my mind when I'm I'm grading the entire team. But uh, as a a whole, I – take this Vikings team and what they've done and try to project it through the next not just five games but through into the playoffs and I feel like the defense Arif is good enough to win you some of those games but maybe not so good that it's going to carry you all the way as people make the comparisons with you know the Trent Dilfer Ravens or something like that I don't think we're quite on that level uh, with this defense. Yeah, they're not the 2013 Seahawks. They're not the 2015 Broncos. They're just a very, very good defense. And, you know, it, it so happens that, uh, you know, Xavier Rhodes had a bad game. That's pretty uncharacteristic. You know, some of that has to do with, like, the weird situation with Terrence Newman and Marvin Jones. Uh, that's probably not going to repeat itself. And I think that has a lot to do with, you know, kind of that Thursday nightness. Um, but, you know, some of it uh, is 
you know, there's been improvement, I think, from, you know, Trey Waynes, who has, you know, struggled early in the year. Uh, and so you can kind of count on that. They're not as vulnerable uh, in that spot. You know, Anthony Barr's been having a good season, aside from these last two games. Uh, and, uh, and just generally speaking, you're right, it's not a defense that can carry you if the offense is inept, um, but it's definitely a defense that features prominently in, like, the number one, two, or three reasons why uh, the team should do well. But certainly it's not the 2013 Seahawks or 2015 Broncos. Which one of the NFC teams in the playoffs right now, Eagles, Falcons, Rams, Panthers, Saints, which one do you not want to face if you are the Minnesota Vikings? Yeah, I think the Eagles. I mean, the Vikings have proven that they can beat the Rams. Obviously the team that they beat uh, in week one against the Saints is a different team, but you know they, they have that confidence going in. And you kind of know you know where those weaknesses might be. Um, with the Eagles, I mean, they just, they're just stacked everywhere. There's not really a weakness that you can target. They've got a good offensive line. Uh, you know, uh, they've got, you know, a, a functional running game. They've got some pretty good receivers. They've got a good quarterback, evidently. Uh, and, uh, and, and they're just kind of really well crafted all around. And then defensively, they've got a really great set of, of, of safeties and corners, which is like a really just a, a big change over where they were a couple of years ago. They've got, like you said, one of the top three defensive lines, uh, and uh, and the linebacker core is not too bad either. Like it, it's it, it's not really a weakness, and that's pretty intimidating. Like, that's the team that I'd want to uh, probably avoid the most. What do you think um, happened to Carson Wentz? I mean, what what made him take the jump from last year? And and I'll admit that my view of him was colored a little bit by a great Vikings defense making him look bad when they played against each other. But I certainly went into this season with some doubts of whether Carson Wentz was going to be a, a top-notch quarterback or just a, a guy trying to manage the game and win with defense. But, you know, there's a, a guy on Twitter, Fran Duffy, who I, I believe works for the Eagles, but he does uh, these film breakdowns every week of Wentz and some other things in those games. And even though he works for the team and he's pointing out the good plays, that, I mean, there's been a lot of good plays and some really high-level quarterback stuff from Carson Wentz. Uh, I mean, is it just that the guy has great makeup and is a good athlete and is a, able to overcome some of the shortcomings with maybe accuracy or he's learned really quickly to get from one read to the next? I mean, what, what do you think it was? Because I know that you weren't sold, which is why I kind of laughed when you said that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I think a lot of it just has to do uh, with uh, what he's been able to do pre-snap. And, and I, I think that some of those weaknesses, you know, a tendency to hold him the ball too long, which is still an issue. Um, he's not the most accurate quarterback in the NFL, but he's also sort of not Cam Newton, who has to make up for accuracy uh, with velocity and explosiveness. Um, you know, I think that those kinds of weaknesses – um, are being overcome by a lot of what he's been able to do pre-snapping, able to identify defenses based off of his film work and what he sees on the field, and knowing sort of where he generally has to put the ball and, and, and which side of the field to target. I think that that plays a pretty big role. I think that he's had a pretty uh, you know useful offensive line that's been able to allow him to hold on to the ball if he needs to. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he's just generally progressed as a quarterback. I just mentioned he's not the most accurate quarterback in the NFL, but he has improved in accuracy, just something like, stereotypically, you can't improve in accuracy. How accurate you are, like age 10, I guess, is how accurate you are for the rest of your life. But, you know, he's improved in accuracy. He has gotten rid of the ball faster, even if it's still a problem. Uh, and, uh, and 
when he does get in trouble, he just, this big frame allows him to kind of avoid those problems, and he's been more aggressive about using his athleticism and his big frame than he was even last year when he only kind of used it as a last resort. Now it's kind of, I think, a more organic part of his game. So how good do we think on the offensive side the Vikings really are? Because these last three weeks have been something. I mean, we didn't see this in London against Cleveland. We didn't see it against Baltimore, who's turned out to have a pretty good defense. Um, boy, they shut down Tom Savage, so good for them. Uh, but we didn't, we didn't even see it the first time that the Vikings played against the Lions, and, and lately they've just been blazing hot. And something just sort of pinged in my mind on Sunday, Arif, about uh, the Kansas City Chiefs and how they started out the season looking unstoppable. Kareem Hunt was the MVP. Tyreek Hill was unbelievable. Alex Smith looked like he was Joe Montana all of a sudden. And then over these last few weeks, teams have figured them out, and it's kind of like they peaked early and then have faded since then. Is Do you think that what we've seen these last few weeks is the real Vikings offense, or has it peaked and will start to decline? It's, it's tough because, you know, five weeks ago, if you had asked me, is this Vikings offense sustainable, I would have said no, and the reason would have been that I didn't think that Case Keenum would have been able to, to move the offense forward. Since then, he has improved pretty dramatically, but at the same time, the offensive line, I think, has degraded a lot. You can't really trust, uh, you know, their ability to create as much in terms of pass protection, create as much in terms of the running lanes. Uh, running backs are getting contacted behind the line of scrimmage a lot more often. And as much as I like Jarek McKinnon and as much as I think, you know, Latavius Murray is not getting a fair shake by the fan base, they're not Delvin Cook. They can't create that many additional yards after contact. And there's just a lot more contact there. Uh, and we saw in the past couple of games, the running game, I think the yards per carry might be fine, but the success rate, how often they're getting, you know, reasonable runs is, is pretty low. And they're kind of sustaining it with these explosive runs that I don't think will kind of repeat themselves going forward, and especially in the playoffs. Uh, that plus, um, you're kind of hoping that Stephon Diggs is, uh, you know, fully healthy, I guess. I don't know if he is, you know, fully healthy in the sense that, you know, where he was at the beginning of the season, and you want him to perform at the level that we know that you can perform at. Uh, and those are all the things that contribute to, I think, offensive sustainability because, uh, you know, with that additional pressure have come additional sacks. Keenum's done a pretty good job of avoiding them. And though Keenum has done a better job placing the ball, leading receivers, generating yards at catch, uh, you know, choosing, picking and choosing his spots, figuring out sort of which side of the field he has to target based on the coverage. While he's improved at that, the rest of the offense around him, it feels like, are not really giving him uh, as much as much space and time and, and the tools that he needs, which is so remarkably weird given how a couple of weeks ago you would have said the exact opposite thing, that the rest of the team was kind of carrying the offense. But I still have those sustainability concerns with that offense. I don't think that the point totals that the Vikings have put up, for whatever reason, are the point totals we're going to kind of see going forward, especially as you continue to play and play against tough defenses again. To that point, I think the Detroit game is interesting to me because I compared it in the lead of a different article to Miguel Sano, where he goes one for four, but that one is a 460-foot dinger, and then there's a bunch of strikeouts. Otherwise, I mean, I think the offensive line gave up a ton of pressure on Case Keenum on Thanksgiving Day. At the same time, they broke open a 37-yard uh, you know, little screen or hitch route 
to uh, Stefan Diggs where Nick Easton got way out and made a great block. And then the Latavius Murray one, Easton and Elfline make good blocks on that one. And then I would say the same thing for a, a big Jarek McKinnon screen early in the game that ended up setting up a touchdown. It was kind of like what we've seen through most of the season was consistency from the offensive line. And now you've seen, uh, I think, some injuries. Riley Reef uh, was dinged up, and maybe he's not quite at 100% now. Uh, Rashad Hill is a really good fill-in tackle, especially when you look around the league at how bad tackle play is. But he's not Mike Remmers. He's not as good of a starter. So I think there's some of that. But also they hit some of those big home runs, like you mentioned, on those explosive plays. So you would kind of grade them in that game as not playing as well overall, but they have been able to uh, you know, come up with big plays when they really needed it, which, I mean, that, that's the thing, Arif, that I question going forward into this uh, Atlanta game is how well are they going to be able to create short passes that turn into big plays? Because I look at the Atlanta defense and I see a lot of speed, especially with the safeties and uh, with the linebackers. Deion Jones is one of the quickest linebackers, I think, in the league. And Keanu Neal looks to me like he's a beast, like he's becoming a better and better player. I think that's going to be a much tougher strategy to uh, deploy against this team. Yeah, those are the two defenders I would isolate, too. And and don't forget Robert Alford, not, you know, the most amazing cornerback, too, but one of the most athletic cornerbacks in the league. Um, he has the ability to close down, and even if he can't always finish the tackle, he has the ability to slow up the player and allow someone like Deion Jones or Keanu Neal uh, to get to get to that screen to, to you know prevent yards after the catch and stuff like that. It's a it's a it's a defense that's predicated on the enormous amount of speed that they have all across um, sort of that that back seven, and uh, it's it's going to be difficult, I think, for them to to pursue an explosive play strategy that relies on getting yards from you know a ball carrier at the line of scrimmage or or you know two yards from the line of scrimmage, either running or or receiving the ball short. I think it's going to be difficult to, to generate those yards after the catch, and they'll have to find the kind of explosive plays that they found earlier in the season, which were just like deep bombs. For Keenum, obviously, he has no problem, you know, unleashing uh, the dragon, as it were, and, and just you know throwing it deep. Um, but uh, against you know the, the cover three defense that they have, uh, that is designed explicitly to prevent those deep bombs, it's going to be a challenge. I, I'm, I'm, I have a lot of faith in Shermer to design, you know, those kinds of plays that will attack them best. Um, even if you know some of the play calling late in the games have been have been a little bit of an issue, uh, Schirmer's been kind of fantastic in in creating offense that's worked against a variety of defenses. That kind of offense that we saw against Detroit, I don't think we're going to see against Atlanta. And if we do, I don't think it would be effective. So let me throw you a, a couple of scenarios, and I want you to tell me which one you think is more likely with the Vikings quarterback situation. Scenario A is that Case Keenum plays well in these next two games and plays out the rest of the season into the playoffs, save for maybe a Week 17 Teddy Bridgewater brief appearance because it's the Bears in Week 17 and maybe the game doesn't matter. So Scenario A is Case Keenum the rest of the way. Scenario B is Case Keenum goes 1-1 one and one in these next couple of games, has some ups, has some downs, throws a pick six, and then uh, Mike Zimmer's left with a really tough decision of whether to try Teddy Bridgewater when they come back home against Cincinnati, or scenario C, where Case Keenum is revealed or regresses back to the mean over these next two games, and then we see Teddy Bridgewater. What one of those scenarios do you think is the most likely? Oh, man. Um, 
he's genuinely improved over the past three weeks. Um, and it's, it's tough for me to include the Washington game just because, you know, some of those picks should have counted and they didn't. And a four touchdown, four pick game is awful. Uh, a four touchdown, two pick game is you'll definitely take that. Um, so it is difficult to say that. But in terms of like the raw quarterback skills, he's done a better job against pressure. He's going to move up into the pocket instead of backpedaling. Um, because he's never going to beat a defensive end who's racing towards him while he's backpedaling. He's done a better job of that. He's done a better job of creating yards on the ground. Uh, he's done a better job leading receivers. Uh, and so it's difficult for me to say, well, he's just going to, you know, crap the bed or anything like that. Um, I, I think, and I, I think that if he plays well in the next two games, I think he's earned an enormously long leash. Um, that gives him, you know, the two more games and he doesn't have to worry about week 17 and then we'll stick with him throughout the playoffs. So I think, that's the most likely, but there's kind of like three quarterback examples that I kind of have in my head that really worry me. Um, two of them were from the 2013 season, Nick Foles, Josh McCown. Mm-hmm. They couldn't sustain their level of play going into the next season. Um, and another one that kind of intrigues me is Josh Freeman. In 2010, he had a Pro Bowl quality season. I don't think he made the Pro Bowl that year, but he had a really good season. And in 2011, he was doing really well for 12 games. He was playing at an even better level. Level should have made the Pro Bowl. And then those final four games, he throws like 12 picks, um, you know, maybe more, and is never the same quarterback again for you know reasons that don't entirely have to do with his talent, but uh, make you kind of worry or wonder, you know, uh, about sustainability of quarterback play. Um, we saw you know some quarterbacks fizzle out in the playoffs and they never do well again. Uh, you kind of sort of pseudo have that with Carson Palmer. Um, it's it's tough, but I think that I think the most likely scenario is that Keenum plays well over the next two games, and that'll be enough to essentially make him the starter for uh, the rest of the season and postseason. The small sample size thing in football just cannot be said enough. I mean, imagine if in baseball or hockey or basketball we just graded teams players evaluated them based on 16 games i mean the idea is is laughable through 16 games you would have thought jimmy butler was the worst shooter that minnesota has ever had and then he's turned it around and he's fine at shooting the basketball because of course you can shoot poorly over a 16 game sample just like you can get blazing hot as shooting over a 16 game sample but in football we can't just magically make them play three more seasons to find out whether this is the real case keenum or not i think uh, a lot of us would lean toward maybe the skill set not suggesting that this is going to be him that he's not going to be some mvp candidate i mean with someone brought up kurt warner in my mentions and i thought oh kurt warner was one of the most accurate quarterbacks who ever lived right i mean so like this i think that's where keenum really struggles Uh, what what has been your take arif on how mike zimmer has handled this situation Uh, for me i think he's slow played it correctly that when a guy has a 30 game or so sample of starting before this and he's showing way above what he's ever done before i think you have to keep the small sample in the back of your head and there's no reason for him to come out and say oh yeah case is our guy we're gonna leave teddy on the bench i i haven't seen any upside to him doing that yeah no i i I actually agree with you and that approach does have the downside of inviting those questions every week that's an appropriate downside. That's fine. No one actually cares how many times reporters ask the question, you know, who's the starter, if Zimmer's doing a good job of managing the locker room kind of independent of that. Um, and I, I agree with you. And I think there's 
a couple of other things potentially at play that we're maybe not entirely aware of. Um, I know I saw this thread on Twitter, which is always a great place to go for analysis. Um, I, I retweeted it. I think it was from Luke Braun. And it, it, it just made this really good point. Like, what if Teddy just looks better in practice? Like, if he just looks better in practice, mm-hmm. all you're really doing is rewarding a quarterback who plays well, which is what you should do. You should reward players who play well, but knowing that there's always the possibility that that quarterback is going to falter or is not going to play well or whatever, and then he looks like a genius for, for not committing to a starter, you know, when or if that happens, or if Teddy plays better, or any of those other things. Like, I, I think he's playing it fine, and I think that um, people who are, I'm not going to say critical of his approach of not naming a starter, well, yeah, sure, fine. People who are just like, just are upset that he hasn't committed to Case Keenum as a starter for the rest of the season are not acknowledging that, like, Zimmer has earned, I think, a lot of leeway as a coach in a lot of situations, maybe not, like, in-game management or anything like that, but a lot of leeway as a talent evaluator in practice, playing the right players and stuff like that, um, and not playing players just to play them. You know, it's like Laquan Treadwell didn't play, and he was a first-round pick, and that's fine, but Anthony Barr played right away. Those were both, like, good decisions. I mean, he's earned a lot of leeway. Just, like, what if Teddy's better in practice? Or, you know, what if he's, like, aware of the dangers of committing to a quarterback who over a 14-and-a-half game sample or, or whatever um, is, is is just not enough information. It's not that people are suspicious of Case Keenum because he's an undrafted quarterback. It's not like Kurt Warner. It's, we've got, like, four seasons of data on him, and they're not mm-hmm. good. Yeah, I think uh, with Zimmer, if you were to ask me what I trust Mike Zimmer with, um, number one would not be to take a day off when he needs it, uh, as we saw last year, but <laughs> I... I think where where I would trust Mike Zimmer the most is defensive strategy number one and number two player evaluation. And I had a chance to talk with Rick Spielman for a piece that I did on the defensive line. And the thing that I came away that Rick continued to tell me with almost each player was, you know, Mike Zimmer had a vision for this player. For Everson Griffin is a great example. Everson Griffin was not a starter and they get they signed him to a, a big contract, which I think surprised a lot of people, but that was what Mike Zimmer wanted. He wanted that type of player coming off the edge, and Griffin is now one of the best defensive players in the entire NFL. And, and so I, th- I think as we go player by player, you can see uh, Zimmer's evaluation ability, and you're right that it really shows up in the rookies. That I, I've seen tweets where, pe- where national reporters will say, well, you know, Zimmer doesn't like to play rookies. Like, that's not true. He saw Delvin Cook ran, run the ball three times in training camps. Like, okay, you're the starter. I mean, it's just, you're better than everyone. It, it, that, I mean, that, that one didn't take a whole lot of genius, but I, I think he knows what he's doing in terms of player evaluation. And, and the other thing is with Teddy Bridgewater, if Zimmer sees this as a hot streak and not the real sort of Case Keenum, then he might be looking at Teddy Bridgewater saying, the only way to sustain or even take our offense to the next level is by adding a better quarterback. And Arif, that's where I, th- I think there are some people who don't want to acknowledge that uh, Teddy Bridgewater is a better quarterback than Case Keenum if he's back to his old form from 2015. Where do you stand on that? Because, I mean, I've gone back and watched every pass that Teddy Bridgewater has thrown and considering that T.J. Clemmings was his left tackle, and Matt, or uh, sorry, his right tackle, Matt Khalil was his left tackle, Mike Wallace was his top wide receiver, basically, I think that Bridgewater 
made a lot out of nothing, whereas Keenum has had a lot of advantages with the receivers and the offensive coordinator that he has. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know that I, I largely agree with you in that. I think that, uh, you know, Teddy Bridgewater um, has, has done some amazing things with a really poor cast of, uh, of players both in front of him and even, you know, who he's throwing to. I mean, obviously, you know, Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen were both on the roster, but they're not the players that they were today. And, you know, he had to deal uh, with, like, Charles Johnson and Cordero Patterson as potential starters. Mm, yeah. um, although I guess Patterson kept on getting named starters and benched. You know, that's kind of the area that you're at. Uh, and Adam Thielen is just certainly not the player um, that he is today. He wasn't even the player he was today last year uh, when, when Sam Bradford was throwing him the ball. You know, he's already improved pretty substantially since then. Uh, and so, you know, who he was throwing to, the running game that he was dealing with, the offensive line that he had uh, in front of him, like, those are all really good indications that, uh, or a really good, uh, you know, examples of of how the people around you and the offensive coordinator Pat Shermer is gifted apparently uh, at being an offensive coordinator. North Turner was kind of stuck in his ways. Um, you know, those are all kind of disadvantages that Teddy I think overcame, I think, pretty substantially. And when you put Case Keenum in a similar circumstance, say the Rams last year, you know, he performed significantly worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and I think that that's pretty, that's pretty good evidence that uh, you've got uh, a quarterback that has the ability to, to really take the offense to the next level over a quarterback that admittedly is playing well and keeping things moving and, uh, you know, has contributed to explosive plays in a big way. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I think that Bridgewater, if he is who he was, or apparently according to some rumors or practice reports, even better, who knows, um, then, yeah, he's a better quarterback who has the ability to take the offense to an even better level. What do you think that Adam Thielen is doing better this year than last year? Uh, I think he's done a better job of selling some of these other routes. Like, he was always a pretty good route runner, um, and, uh, you know, he's improved over the past four years with his hands, um, and he's always been really athletic, but the way that he's been a good route runner has been mostly through, you know, precision, being where he needs to be, you know, cutting pretty sharply and stuff like that. This year he's doing a better job, I think, of selling the other route, which is another part of route running because a lot of it is storytelling. Um, and he's been able to sell an in-breaking route to go up or to, uh, to go up and sell, uh, to, to sell uh, you know, a route going up and then breaking outside and stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, the way that the offense has been designed over the past three weeks, you know, they've been not, not helping him or scheming him open, but they've been designing the offense as if he's the primary receiver um, which, you know, fair. Uh, and in doing so, they've really kind of enabled a wider gamut of plays available to him, and he's performed on those wider, uh, on, on those sort of diverse play options, I think, really, really well, because he's created better spacing uh, against zone coverage. He's created, um, you know, better moves to, uh, to move people kind of off their mark, you know, those kinds of things. You know, I I, uh, have never taken Thielen for a guy who's short on confidence at all. Uh, In fact, I was doing a piece on him playing basketball in high school and how he attributes some of his footwork and uh, some skills to being such a good basketball player. And I said to him, well, if, you know, you had kept playing basketball, you wouldn't be in the NBA, right? And then he looked back at me and said, well, you wouldn't have thought I would have been in the NFL in high school either. Like, okay, touche, sir. So this is an extremely confident, <laughs> extremely, extremely confident person. That was a great answer. Uh, but I feel like his confidence is even up more. I mean, there was one play where he got open on a 12-yard pass. It was short. 
but where he leaned so far to his right before snapping back to his left. It was almost like when a guy in basketball is really feeling it and crosses over hard a couple of times and then shoots the fadeaway. It was just like, I know that this is going to work and deke you out of your shoes, and I'm going to do it right now. And then he got wide open. And the other thing is, too, finding those holes inside of zones and reacting to Case Keenum moving outside the pocket. I mean, there's one play just going through the Detroit game where Keenum, it's designed for him to roll right, and then they do a couple of different levels where guys, if someone's open, you can go down the field or dump it off. And But Keenum has to hold the ball a little longer, and Thielen's able to kind of weave his way through and find some open space. And, I, I mean, I don't know if that's a lot different than last year in opportunity or just that he's had more and more experience with a quarterback on the move, and it seems like an extra little skill of his. Yeah, no, certainly, and I think that that, um, particularly, you know, his ability with the scramble drill, tracks really well with what has turned out to be um, extremely good ball tracking. And I think, um, you know, Vikings fans are familiar with, like, the Bernard Barrions and the Daryl Pattersons. You know, when they get open downfield, they, like, lose the ball in the air. And Thielen's kind of the opposite. He knows exactly where he needs to be when he gets a sense of where the ball is coming, and that's really good for those scramble drills when he finds, you know, he's leaving through traffic, he's finding the open space, and he knows, you know, the best place that the ball is going to be, heads to that place, sees the ball in the air, and continues to adjust for where it's going to be, which is, I think, a skill that not enough people talk about when talking about wide receivers. Diggs and Thielen as a pair, um, you know, you could say they're the best wide receiver pair in the league, and that may be true, but in terms of that individual skill, ball tracking, you know, I think that there's not a pair of receivers in the league that even comes close to, to that specific skill. You know, Arif, when a, a team, I totally agree with that. And their ability to win contested balls, too. I mean, you hear it all the time, 50-50 balls, but they're never really 50-50. It's more like 20-80, but these guys make them 50-50. If you, if you throw it into traffic, uh, they can go up and get it against almost anybody. We've seen, especially Diggs did that against Tampa Bay several times in one game where he just embarrassed some cornerback by climbing up uh, the ladder and getting the ball. So it's almost like as the quarterback throwing in their direction can never be a mistake unless it just gets picked off in front of them. Um, it, you know, there aren't too many criticisms, Arif, to have of a 9-2 and two team. But I think I have one. And I know we were just talking about how good uh, Mike Zimmer is with player evaluation. Can you explain... Laquan Treadwell, 374 snaps this year, and Jarius Wright, about half of that. And, I mean, Michael Floyd was hurt a little bit, and he was suspended a little bit. But am am I missing something on that? Could the blocking be so important from Laquan Treadwell that he should have 200 more snaps than Jarius Wright? Um, yeah, I, I kind of agree with you there that, that Wright should be getting uh, more snaps. He's more capable. I think a lot of it has to has to do with the kinds of packages that Schirmer wants to run. And I know you've mentioned a lot of times on Twitter, like, you know, they'll, they'll do these excellent play-action packages out of two or three tight end sets. When you think about what's a run alert and what's a pass alert, Laquan Treadwell on the field or Jarius Wright in the field, that's probably also a run alert or pass alert. So that might be playing a role in the drop-off in receiving quality from Wright to Treadwell. I think can maybe be made up for how effective play-action has been or, um, you know, it's just not that relevant given you sort of how good uh, Thielen and Diggs are or how good Rudolph has been over the past couple of weeks. Um, so I think those may play a role. I'm just kind of speculating, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was like a, a, a package personnel thing where, 
when you've got right on the field, it's unlikely that they're going to be relying on him to block. Although, I guess they have put Adam Thielen and Stephon Diggs onto linebackers before, so who knows. Yeah. But uh, it, it really feels like you're more likely to sell play action when you've got two tight ends and Laquan Treadwell on the field. It stands out to me on tape how much Stephon Diggs does commit to blocking people, which I, I'm not sure is something you would expect because of his uh, girth or lack thereof. I mean, he's not a huge guy by any means, but I look at him on, on run plays especially uh, where he's a, he's a pretty darn good blocker. And, and maybe you're right that um, if Treadwell is out there that other teams think, well, they just use him to block. But uh, it, it just seems like every time they ask Jarius Wright, to run a drag route underneath the zone or something, then he gets open and makes the catch and, and has uh, some success there. And maybe that's the only thing that he can do, so they just want to spot him in there. But if I'm going into a playoff game against a team with a really good defense, say you know someone like Atlanta or Carolina, I think I would want to have all of my best weapons and maybe just end the Laquan Treadwell experiment. Um, let me ask you... This is a question that I've tried to avoid on the Purple Podcast for the most part, Arif, is next year with the quarterback situation. Uh, where do you where do you see it? How do you even begin to put a guess on where this team could be at quarterback next year, or will it be decided over these next couple of weeks? I think it might be decided over the next couple of weeks, and maybe not even then. Maybe you have to wait. Uh, for for the playoffs. If the Vikings are one and done in the playoffs, I think that makes it a little bit easier to move on from Keenum, who's going to command uh, a pretty good contract, uh, given just sort of the quarterback contracts we've seen, uh, and and commit to Teddy sort of long term. Um, but you know, if if you've got Keenum and, he, and he's riding him in the playoffs and he takes you to the NFC Championship game or even the Super Bowl, it, it would be really hard. Like, not everyone is Ozzie Newsom and can just say goodbye to Trent Dilfer or, or you know, whatever the closest example can be. Um, and, uh, you know, there are, which I guess, there are more people like the more recent Ozzie Newsom that commits to Joe Flacco um, <laughs> after a, a Super Bowl run uh, than there are people that are like old Ozzie Newsom. You know, I, I think that's the that's kind of where you are, where yeah, well, I guess, you know, it worked. So I guess that's what we're going to do. I think that that's more likely that I think that they're going to commit to Keenum in a scenario. It's a really high bar, but in a scenario where they end up uh, doing well in the NFC Championship game or even going to the Super Bowl. Um, but otherwise, I think that the team really does like Teddy, and it. Uh, I think that this is not relevant to, uh, to, to the decision that they'll make, but it's icing on the cake that Teddy is probably going to be cheaper. He's probably going to make things a lot easier in terms of extensions for the rest of the player or attracting other free agents. Um, and they can let Keenum kind of negotiate this really difficult quarterback and and team market where you've got a lot of good teams that are not in a position to draft well, like the Jaguars and maybe the Broncos that need a quarterback. Um, and also a lot of good quarterbacks like Tyrod Taylor and Kirk Cousins and Case Keenum. And, uh, and maybe, you know, they'll put Alex Smith on the trading block, who knows, and that's going to make it really difficult to figure out sort of what's happening there. If you can just ignore all of that and just sign Teddy, it might just be easier. But that is probably not going to be the primary reason why they do it. It might just be sort of an icing on the cake kind of thing. Well, and they, and they certainly have to find a way at some point to see him play actual National Football League football if uh, that's in the plan. Uh, that could be what ends up happening in, in Week 17, I think. I, I kind of have that now. If he's not the starter before then, earmarked as a game that they would use to at least get somewhat of a gauge of where he stands. Last thing for you, Arif, uh, 
Arif, I think just coming across my Twitter now, we have the 2018 quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings. And I'm basing this on a lot of history here. Eli Manning is not going to play this weekend. He's healthy. They're benching him for Geno Smith. That definitely means Eli Manning is the quarterback of the Vikings in 2018. No question. It's been decided just now. (laughs) You'd follow the rich tradition of uh, of finding uh, former pro bowlers past their prime, adding them to the team, and you're down to Nads or Brett Favre. I don't think – I don't think Vikings fans would be too excited about that. I, I am not. Get, I'm not counting it out. You could never. When Jeff George played for this team and Randall Cunningham, oh, it's, it's definitely just, a possibility. You can yeah, absolutely never a count anything out. <laughs> all right, Arifa. I know that I. Uh, it was uh, so, some sort of rapid fire all over the map here with the Vikings, but uh, I, I really appreciate your analysis on everything. And people should read your work at ZoneCoverage.com. Great stuff, and thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, and thank you all for listening to another episode of the Purple Podcast.